Chapter 20 The Middle Ages awaited the hero of the Grail and expected that the head of the Holy Roman Empire would become an image and a manifestation of that King of the World. The invisible emperor was to become also the visible one, and the Middle Ages would be middle in the sense of central, the invisible, inviolable center, the sovereign who must reawaken, the same hero avenging and restoring. These are not fantasies of a dead romantic past, but rather the simple truth for those who, today, alone can legitimately call themselves alive. Julius Evola, Il Mistero del Graal, Rome, Edizioni Mediterranee, 1983, Chapter 23, and Epilogue. You mean the Grail also comes into this? Belbo asked. Naturally, and I'm not the only one who says so. You are educated men. There is no need for me to go into the legend of the Grail. The Knights of the Round Table, the mystical quest for this miraculous object, which some believe was the chalice in which the blood of Jesus was collected. The Grail taken to France by Joseph of Arimathea. Others say it is a stone that possesses mysterious powers. The grail is often depicted as a dazzling light. It's a symbol representing power, a source of immense energy. It nourishes, heals wounds, blinds, strikes down. Some have thought of it as the philosopher's stone of the alchemists. But even if that's so, what was the philosopher's stone if not a symbol of some cosmic energy? The literature on the subject is endless, but you can easily distinguish signs that are irrefutable. In Wolfram von Eschenbach's Parzival, the Grail is said to be kept in a Templar castle. Was Eschenbach an initiate? A foolhardy writer who revealed too much? But there is more. This Grail, kept by the Templars, is described as a stone fallen from the heavens. Lapis exilis. It's not clear whether the expression means stone from heaven, ex coelis, or stone from exile. But in either case it is something that comes from far away, and some suggest that it could have been a meteorite. As far as we're concerned, however, it is definitely a stone. Whatever the grail may have been, for the Templars it was the symbol of the objective, or the end of the plan. Excuse me, I said, but the document indicates that the knight's sixth meeting will be held near or above a stone. It doesn't tell them to find the stone. Another subtle ambiguity! Another luminous mystical analogy. Yes, indeed. The sixth meeting is to be held near a stone, and we shall soon see where. But at that stone, where the transmission of the plan is fulfilled and the six seals opened, the knights will learn where to find the stone. It's like the pun in the New Testament. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock. On the stone you shall find the stone. It's all quite obvious, Belbo said. Please go on. Kasabin, stop interrupting. We're all eager to hear the rest. Well, then, the colonel said, the reference to the grail made me think for a long time that the treasure was a huge deposit of radioactive material, perhaps of extraterrestrial origin. Consider, for example, the mysterious wound in the legend of King Amfortus. The account makes him sound like a radiologist who has been dangerously exposed. He is not to be touched. Why not? Imagine how excited the Templars must have been when they reached the shores of the Dead Sea, whose waters, as you gentlemen surely know, are so dense that on them you float like a cork. It is a sea with curative powers. They could have discovered a deposit of radium or uranium in Palestine, a deposit they weren't in a position to exploit then and there. 
The relationship between the Grail, the Templars, and the Cathars was investigated scientifically by a valiant German officer. I'm referring to Otto Rahn, an SS Obersturmbannführer, who devoted his life to rigorous scholarly study of the European and Aryan nature of the Grail. I won't go into why and how he lost his life in 1939, but some insist that, well, how can I forget what happened to Ingolf? In any case, Ron demonstrated a link between the Golden Fleece of the Argonauts and the Grail. It's obvious that there's a connection between the Grail, the Philosopher's Stone, and the enormous power source that Hitler's followers were seeking on the eve of the war and pursued to their last breath. In one version of the Argonaut story, remember, they see a cup, a cup, mind you, floating over the mountain of the world with the Tree of Light. When the Argonauts find the Golden Fleece, their ship is magically borne into the Milky Way in the austral sky where the luminous nature of God Eternal is made manifest by the Southern Cross, the Triangle, and the Altar. The Triangle symbolizes the Holy Trinity, the Cross, the Divine Sacrifice of Love, and the Altar is the Table of the Supper, on which stood the Cup of the Resurrection. The Celtic and Aryan origin of all these symbols is obvious. The colonel seemed caught in the same heroic ecstasy that had impelled his Obersturmendrang, or whatever the hell that German was, to the supreme sacrifice. Someone had to bring him down to earth. "'Where is all this leading?' I asked. "'Signor Kasabin, can't you see it for yourself? The Grail has been called the Luciferian Stone, which points to the figure of Baphomet. The Grail is a power source, the Templars were the guardians of an energy secret, and they drew up their plan accordingly.' Where would the unknown commanderies be established? Where, gentlemen? And the colonel looked at us with a conspiratorial air, as if we were all in the plot together. I had a trail to follow, erroneous but useful. In 1797, Charles-Louis Cadet de Gassicourt, an author who must have overheard some secrets, wrote a book entitled Le Tombeau de Jacques Molay ou Le Secret des Conspirateurs à ceux qui veulent tout savoir. By an interesting coincidence, his work turned up in Ingolf's little library. He claims that Molay, before his death, set up four secret lodges in Paris, Scotland, Stockholm, and Naples. These four lodges were to exterminate all monarchs and destroy the power of the Pope. Gassicourt was an eccentric, of course, but I used his idea as a starting point from which to determine where the Templars might have located their secret centers. I wouldn't have been able to understand the enigmas of the message if I hadn't had some guiding idea. But I did have such an idea. It was my conviction, based on abundant evidence, that the Templar spirit was of Celtic, Druidic origin. It was the spirit of the Nordic Arianism, traditionally associated with the island of Avalon, seat of the legendary civilization of the Far North. As you surely know, various authors have identified Avalon as the Garden of the Hesperides, or as Ultima Thule, or as the Calchas of the Golden Fleece. It's hardly an accident that history's greatest chivalric order was La Toison d'Or, the Order of the Golden Fleece, which makes it clear what the word castle in the message really means. It refers to the Hyperboreal, the northernmost castle, where the Templars kept the Grail, probably the mythical Montsalvat. He paused, wanting us to hang on his every word. We hung. Now let's go back to the second command in the message. The guardians of the seal are to go to a place associated with bread. This instruction is completely clear. The grail is the chalice that contained Christ's blood, the bread is Christ's body, 
the place where the bread was eaten is the place of the Last Supper, Jerusalem. It seems impossible that the Templars wouldn't have maintained a secret base there even after the Saracen reconquest. I must admit that at first I was troubled by this Jewish element in a plan so deeply imbued with Aryan mythology. But then I realized we are the ones who continue to regard Jesus as deriving from the Judaic religion, because that's what the Church of Rome has always taught us. But the Templars knew that Jesus was actually a Celtic myth. The whole gospel story is a hermetic allegory. Resurrection after dissolution in the bowels of the earth and all that. Christ is simply the elixir of the alchemists. For that matter, everyone knows that the Trinity is an Arian concept anyway, and that's why the whole rule of the Templars, drawn up by the Druid St. Bernard, is riddled with the number three. The colonel took another sip of water. He was hoarse. And now we come to the third stage, the refuge. It's Tibet. Why Tibet? Because in the first place, Eschenbach tells us the Templars left Europe and took the Grail to India. Cradle of the Aryan race. The refuge is a garter. You gentlemen must have heard talk of a garter, seat of the king of the world, the underground city from which the masters of the world control and direct the developments of human history. The Templars established one of their secret centers there, at the very source of their spirituality. You must be aware of the connection between the realm of a garter and the synarchy. Frankly, no. All the better. There are secrets that kill. But let's not digress. In any case, you know that Agatha was founded six thousand years ago, at the beginning of the Kali Yuga era, in which we are still living. The task of the knightly orders has always been to maintain contact with Agatha, the active link between the wisdom of the East and the wisdom of the West. And now it's clear where the fourth meeting is to take place, in another Druidic sanctuary, in a city of the Virgin, the Cathedral of Chartres. From Provence, Chartres lies across the chief river of the Île-de-France, the Seine. We were completely lost. Wait a minute, I said. What does Chartres have to do with your Celts and Druids? Where do you think the idea of the Virgin came from? The first virgins mentioned in Europe were the black virgins of the Celts. Once, as a young man, St. Bernard was in the church of Saint-Voir, kneeling before the black virgin there, and she squeezed from her breast three drops of milk which fell on the lips of the future founder of the Templars. That was why the romances of the Grail arose, to create a cover for the Crusades, which were meant to find the Grail. The Benedictines are the heirs of the Druids. Everybody knows that. And where are these black virgins now? They were destroyed by forces who wanted to corrupt the Nordic and Celtic traditions and transform them into a Mediterranean religion by inventing the myth of Mary of Nazareth. Or else those virgins were disguised, distorted, like so many other black Madonnas still displayed to the fanaticism of the masses. But if you examine the images in the cathedrals as carefully as the great Fulcanelli did, you will find that this story is told quite clearly, and the ties between the Celtic virgins and the alchemist tradition, Templar in origin, are equally clear. The black virgin symbolizes the prime matter that seekers employ in their quest for the Philosopher's Stone, which, as we have seen, is simply the grail. Where do you think Muhammad, another great druid initiate, got the inspiration for the black stone at Mecca? Someone walled up the crypt in Chartres that leads to the underground site where the original pagan statue still stands, but if you look carefully you can still make out a black virgin, Notre-Dame-du-Pilier, carved by an Odinian cannon. In her right hand she holds the magic cylinder of the high priestesses of Odin. In her left the magic calendar that once depicted, I say once, 
because these sculptures unfortunately were vandalized by orthodox canons, the sacred animals of Odinism. The dog, the eagle, the lion, the white bear, and the werewolf. At the same time, none of the scholars of Gothic esoterica has overlooked in Chartres a statue of a woman holding the chalice, the grail. Ah, gentlemen, if only it were possible not just to read Chartres Cathedral according to the tourist guides, Roman, Catholic, and apostolic, but to see it, really see it with the eyes of tradition. Then the true story told by that rock of Eric at Avalon would be known. Which brings us to the Poplicans. Who were they? The Cathars. Poplican, or Poplicant, was one of the names given to heretics. The Cathars of Provence had been destroyed, and I'm not so naive as to imagine a meeting in the ruins of Montségur, but the sect itself didn't die. There's a whole geography of hidden Catharism, which produced Dante, as well as the Dolce Stil Nuovo poets and the Fideli d'Amore sect. The fifth meeting place is therefore somewhere in northern Italy or southern France. And the last? Ah, what is the most ancient, the most sacred, the most enduring of Celtic stones? The sanctuary of the sun-god, most favored observation point from which finally the reunited descendants of the Templars of Provence, having reached the end of their plan, can look upon the secrets hidden till then by the seven seals, and at last discover how to exploit the immense power granted by their possession of the Holy Grail. Why, it's in England! The magic circle of Stonehenge, where else? Oh, Bastala, Bobo said. Only another child of Piedmont could have understood the spirit in which this expression of polite amazement was uttered. No equivalent in any other language or dialect, didonc, are you kidding, can convey the apathy, the fatalism with which it expresses the firm conviction that the person to whom it is addressed is irreparably the product of a bumbling creator. But the colonel wasn't from Piedmont, and he seemed flattered by Bobo's reaction. Yes, indeed. Such is the plan, the ordination in its marvelous simplicity and coherence. And there's something else. If you take a map of Europe and Asia and trace the development of the plan, beginning with the castle in the north, and moving from there to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Agartha, from Agartha to Chartres, from Chartres to the shores of the Mediterranean, and from there to Stonehenge, you will find that you have drawn a rune that looks more or less like this. And, Belbo asked, and the same rune ideally would connect the main centers of Templar esotericism, Amiens, Troyes, St. Bernard's domain at the edge of the Forêt d'Orient, Reims, Chartres, Rennes-le-Château, and Mont-Saint-Michel, a place of ancient druidic worship. The rune also recalls the constellation of the Virgin. I dabble in astronomy, Theotolevi said shyly. The Virgin has a different shape, and I believe it contains eleven stars. The colonel smiled indulgently. Gentlemen, gentlemen, you know as well as I do that everything depends on how you draw the lines. You can make a wane or a bear, whatever you like, and it's hard to decide whether a given star is part of a given constellation or not. Take another look at the Virgin. Make speak of the lowermost point corresponding to the Provencal coast. Use only five stars, and you'll see a striking resemblance between the two outlines. You just have to decide which stars to omit, Belbo said. Precisely, the colonel agreed. Listen, Belbo said, how can you rule out the possibility that the meetings did take place as scheduled, and that the knights are now hard at work? Because, 
I perceive no symptoms, and allow me to add, unfortunately. No, the plan was definitely interrupted, and perhaps those who were to carry it to its conclusion no longer exist. The groups of the thirty-six may have been broken up by some worldwide catastrophe. But some other group of men with spirit, men with the right information, could perhaps pick up the thread of the plot. Whatever it is, that something is still there. I'm looking for the right men. That's why I want to publish the book, to encourage reactions. And at the same time I'm trying to make contact with people who can help me look for the answer in the labyrinth of traditional learning. Just today I managed to meet the greatest expert on the subject. But he, alas, luminary that he is, couldn't tell me anything, though he expressed great interest in my story and promised to write a preface. Excuse me, Belbo asked, but wasn't it unwise to confide your secret to this gentleman? You told us yourself about Ingolf's misstep. Please, the colonel replied. Ingolf is a bungler. The person I'm in contact with is a scholar above suspicion, a man who doesn't venture hasty conclusions. Today, for instance, he asked me to wait a little longer before showing my work to a publisher, until I had resolved all the controversial points. I didn't want to antagonize him, so I didn't tell him I was coming here. But I'm sure you can understand how impatient I am, having come this far in my work. The gentleman—oh, to hell with discretion! I don't want you to think I'm bragging idly. He is Rakowski. He paused for our reaction. Belbo disappointed him. Who? Rakowski! The Rakowski! The authority on traditional studies, the former editor of Les Cahiers du Mystère. Oh, that Rakowski, Belbo said. Yes, yes, of course. Before writing the final version of my book, I'll wait to hear this gentleman's advice. But I wanted to move as quickly as possible, and if I could come to an agreement with your firm in the meantime— As I said, I am eager to stir up reactions, to collect new information. There are people who surely know, but won't speak. Around 1944, gentlemen, though he knew the war was lost, Hitler began talking about a secret weapon that would allow him to turn the situation around. He was crazy, people said. But what if he wasn't crazy? You follow me? His forehead was bathed in sweat, and his moustache bristled like a feline's whiskers. In any event, he said, I'm casting the bait. We'll see if anyone bites. From what I knew and thought of Belbo then, I expected him to show the colonel out with some polite words. But he didn't. Listen, colonel, he said. This is enormously interesting, regardless of whether you sign a contract with us or with someone else. Do you think you could spare another ten minutes or so? He turned to me. It's late, Kasabin, and I've kept you too long already. Can we meet tomorrow? I was being dismissed. Theo Talevi took my arm and said he was leaving too. We said goodbye. The colonel shook Theo Talevi's hand warmly and gave me a nod accompanied by a chilly smile. As we were going down the stairs, Theo Talevi said to me, you're probably wondering why Belbo asked you to leave. Don't think he was being rude. He's going to make the colonel an offer. It's a delicate matter. Delicate by order of Signor Garamond. Our presence would be an embarrassment. As I learned later, Belbo meant to cast the colonel into the maw of Minutius. I dragged Theo Talevi to Pilades, where I had a Campari and he a root beer. Root beer, he said, had a monkish, archaic taste, almost Templar. I asked him what he thought of the colonel. All the world's follies, 
he replied, turn up in publishing houses sooner or later. But the world's follies may also contain flashes of the wisdom of the Most High. So the wise man observes folly with humility. Then he excused himself. He had to go. This evening a feast awaits me, he said. A party? He seemed dismayed by my frivolity. The Zohar, he explained. Lech Lecha. Passages still completely misunderstood.